So, Paul, you know, I, <laughs> I heard that the Philadelphia Mint is going to be closing. Okay. But, Paul, I got to say, I'm, I'm not opposed to it because uh, it, just, it just makes sense. So, Paul, one more. Uh, Paul, you know, Philadelphia cream cheese, they've had this viral uh, social media posting as of late, and it's really aggressive against their competitors. Go on. <laughs> Paul, it was one of the worst smear campaigns I've ever seen. <laughs> All right, so uh, we'll cue the music with that. Great. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Let's say welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Delson-Williams. And Paul... Uh, today we're going to be talking about xylazine and opioid use disorder, acute pain, how do we deal with this. But before we get to that, will you tell, tell the people in the audience, what is it that we do on Curbsiders? Yeah, and I often wonder. Um, thank you so much for having us, by the way. But we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And we are fortunate to be joined by Dr. Joe DeRazio, who's going to talk us through xylazine and opioid use disorder. And sort of this is sort of our opioid use disorder 201 episode, I want to say maybe 301. It doesn't matter. But um, before we bring him up, why don't I let you tell the audience about sure. who we're talking to? Dr. Joseph DeRazio is a board-certified emergency medicine physician, medical toxicologist, and addiction medicine specialist at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University. He cares for patients with substance use disorder in a variety of settings, including the hospital, an outpatient office, and a low-barrier access mobile unit. Joe is a tireless advocate for providing quality care to patients with substance use disorder. So without further ado, let's bring him up. All right. There we go. Yep. Thunderous applause. So we're going to tell the audience about JJ, who is a 30-year-old female. She has a history of opioid use disorder, not currently taking any medications for this, and a history of overdose that has previously been non-responsive to naloxone, brought into the ED with concern for a left lower extremity infection. She's drowsy, but protecting her airway. Her blood pressure is 110 over 70, with a heart rate in the 80s, so hemodynamically okay. She has chronic-looking weeping wounds covering her the entirety of her bilateral lower extremities below the knees with tissue loss and necrosis. She is now reporting new left leg pain with erythema proximal to her chronic wounds. Cultures are sent. She started on broad-spectrum antibiotics. On prior admissions, there were self-directed discharges um, prior to the completion of treatment for cellulitis, which we suspect was probably due to not adequately managing her withdrawal symptoms. So, Joe, we're, we're sort of setting up the case here. We have some historical features that might be uh, consistent with, say, xylazine um, co-intoxication. So, before we get into the case and your management and sort of all the other stuff we want to talk about, could you just sort of give us the broad strokes when you're talking to your colleagues or your patients about xylazine? How, how do you explain it and what are you explaining? Um, yeah, so I think uh, you'll hear a couple different terms for what this uh, drug is in the community. So people typically call this trank, tranquilizer, deer tranquilizer, animal tranquilizer, that sort of stuff. But xylazine is a centrally acting alpha-2 agonist similarly to clonidine. Um, and it causes a lot of sedation similar to what we would see with uh, benzodiazepines. Um, you know, it's used for as a animal anesthetic for like procedural sedation. Um, so that's sort of the same effect that we're going to get out of this drug in humans. 
Um, and it, it, you know, it's not working at the mu receptor, so it's uh, not going to be um, amenable to reversal with like a naloxone, uh, an opioid antagonist. But um, uh, so it causes a lot of like Narcan or naloxone resistant uh, overdose. So lots of sedation is what we're really saying. And this is, I have to say, uh, practicing out in the suburbs, this isn't something I had heard of. And uh, Paul mentioned Trank, and I, I had no idea what he was talking about. And, and just reading about it, it doesn't seem like people are quite certain why it's become so popular in the Northeast. But do you have theories about that? You know, I think it's really difficult to get in the minds of the suppliers of substances. And uh, I think there's a lot of monetary forces that go into this and it's uh, readily available and it's cheap. And so I think that's mostly why it's getting in there. I think there's some thought in the community about why this uh, is in there. And, you know, I hear a lot of people will say like, oh, it gives the opioid a lot more or longer legs. And so like you're saying that, like it's giving fentanyl a longer acting effect. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's necessarily true. And actually most people on the user end will say they're actually trying to avoid xylazine at all cost because it doesn't give them the opioid effect. And uh, they wake up a couple hours later and they're actually in withdrawal and they have, they have to rush and get another bag. Paul, did you find anything interesting about the cost of, of xylazine? Yeah, so good news forever. If, if medical stuff doesn't work out for you, apparently you can buy a kilogram for $60 without a veterinary license. Like you can just buy it from various suppliers. So it's it's very findable, apparently. So I, it's, yeah. I think that the market forces are part of it. Um, and that DEA uh, brief that you sent me said it's, it's just not a controlled substance at all which seems like bananas. maybe it should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, though, I would want to warn, give a little uh, a word of warning about this, though, because, uh, you know, we've had this problem with unintended consequences with uh, restricting um, medications in the past. So like we saw with opioids, you know, when we curtailed the prescription of pharmaceutical opioids, uh, we really saw the rise of heroin and then fentanyl, some more dangerous substances. And in the same sort of scenario, if we cur are curtailing the supply of xylazine, there could be much more dangerous substances out there, you know, shorter acting benzodiazepines or other short acting uh, sedatives that can cause you know, severe withdrawal syndromes and cause worsening problems. Is anyone seeking out xylazine in and of itself? Uh, like we're talking about it in terms of adulteration right now, whether someone's actually looking for it with fentanyl or heroin or inadvertently finding it there. Is anyone actually just looking for xylazine that you've seen? Uh, you know, really have not seen that in our hospital or low barrier access uh, units. Um, uh, I imagine it's out there. Um, you know, it is a sedative. And uh, as long as there are, you know, sedatives around people are are going to end up with a sedative use disorder, like a benzo, benzo, benzodiazepine use disorder, I think it's going to be no different. But as of right now, really, the only place that we've been seeing it is in conjunction with fentanyl use. And like I said before, like most, most patients are like looking, trying to not to get xylazine. I, I wasn't aware of how the how unpure the drug supply had become, I guess, until the past like six months or so, which is I have multiple conversations and news stories I've seen. And uh, this this was a substance I but I, I like the point that you're making that if it's not xylazine, they'll find something else because it's just it's the cheaper you can make it, the you know, that's what the suppliers are after. It's 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 about money. So. Yeah, and actually, when you look at the um, overdose records here in Philadelphia, we've noticed over the last 10 years, our benzodiazepine use has really decreased a lot as the xylazine use has picked up. They've really been inversely proportional to each other. So let's get into how we would recognize this. So the case we gave you, this person 
has overdosed. They didn't respond to naloxone. What else about this case makes you think of xylazine? Well, I think the obvious one here is the chronic weeping wounds. I think anyone who's heard about xylazine has heard that it causes severe wounds, um, especially people who are using injection drug use. Um, so that, that's the big thing that pops out to me. What do we have a sense? Um mechanistically why this is happening too? Like this is like, is I'm, I'm sure that people are looking at this now, this phenomenon is becoming more apparent, but why are the wounds so drastic with xylazine as opposed to sort of the other skin and soft tissue in infections that we've seen with uh, injection drug use? You know, unfortunately we don't have a lot of um, understanding about that that problem. I think there still needs a lot of research that needs to go into both the pharmacology and the effects of this drug in humans. You know, we have some data in animals that this uh, this causes wounds in repeated use. So I imagine there's a cytotoxic effect to this drug. Uh, we're not typically seeing in people who are using um, fentanyl and xylazine in ways other than injection drug use. So the people who are snorting or smoking don't typically end up with these wounds. It's really uh, the people who are um, using injection drug use behavior. So uh, it's mostly at the sites that they're injecting. Um, you know, rarely I hear people say like, oh, I never injected in that area and, and a wound popped up, but it's um, but mostly the area that people are injecting at. So I imagine it's cytotoxic effect, but maybe there also is a behavioral um, component to this. As you can see, actually just in the picture behind us, like where are these wounds occurring? And they're mostly occurring on the extensor surfaces of their extremities. So we're not really seeing wounds like on, on the back or areas that people aren't easily able to access with their hands. It's mostly on the extensor surface of their legs and their forearms. So uh, there may be like a, um, you know, a, a picking behavior that comes with this. And also, like like I said, people are trying to avoid using xylazine because it makes them sedate and then they end up with withdrawal when they wake up. So actually there's you know an uptick in methamphetamine use to sort of combat the sedative effect. So it's, we certainly know about picking behavior associated with methamphetamine use too. In this case, I always find when someone has chronic wounds um, on, on the screen here, these wounds look very chronic, but what tips you off? Are, are the wounds from xylazine typically painful? And how do you recognize if the person truly has an infection with, with this type of wound? Yeah, you know, this this picture here is actually relatively superficial. I mean, the, there's some necrotic areas there. The um, edges of those wounds can be pretty painful, but once they are pretty, once they're deep, uh, it's relatively insensate, and so they're not painful. You know, like the dressing changes and the debridement, that can be certainly painful, but overall, they, they don't seem to be terribly painful. Um, and we see a lot of like inflammatory reaction around the edges. So oftentimes see patients coming in with uh, erythema around the edges of the wounds. Um, and it tends to be mostly on the inflammatory side um, compared to like a um, cellulitis, but oftentimes get treated as a cellulitis in the beginning stages. Um, uh, and a lot, of, a lot of the infection is like a superficial infection, like like a slough that we'll see. You can see in some areas there, there's some uh, superficial uh, bacterial growth on that wound that is amenable to just some topical uh, antibiotic ointments. The picture we're referring to for people who aren't in the audience here is, uh, is from an article by Ermin Dupre in the Journal of Addiction Medicine in 2022 of a case report. Um, so the question was, for wounds like this, are, are are you seeing anyone heal these wounds? And what's this looks like this will require skin grafting, plastic surgery, or vascular surgery involvement? 
you know, they're actually relatively um, easy to treat and it takes a long time for the for them to heal for sure. But, you know, uh, we have plenty of patients who have uh, engaged with treatment who then have a wound that heals. Um, it, like I said, it takes months. Um, the major uh, part of the care, though, is removal of exposure that's causing the problem so that people aren't injecting into that wound, which can be very difficult, um, especially if they're not getting onto the side of uh, treatment. But like trying to convince someone to no longer inject into the wound can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but removing that that cytotoxic effect is going to be primary thing to do here. Debridement. Um, is really important. As you can see, a lot of that area is necrotic and has an eschar. And, uh, you know, sometimes you'll hear in the community that leaving that eschar on there is really important. So sometimes people will be resistant to debridement. I gotta say that is really just harboring infection underneath. So that really needs to be debrided. It doesn't always have to be a physical debridement. It can be an enzymatic debridement with like a hydrocolloidal um, honey, uh, ointment or like a collagenase ointment that can break down that eschar. And then after you're cleaning and debriding and you get to healthy tissue, putting on an antibiotic ointment covering, a non-adhesive dressing, an absorbent cover, and then continue to do dressing changes and keeping it clean. And over the next couple of months, it will heal on its own. And actually a small minority of them require uh, skin grafting. Uh, sometimes we use like a, a, a synthetic substance, like a biodegradable um, uh, polymer to cover over it temporarily until that tissue uh, can heal. So a BTM, that's been a, like a, a newer technique that we've been utilizing to cover over them, especially the ones that are very deep and have tendons or bone that's exposed in that wound. Uh, but a wound like this uh, would typically take a couple months to heal with just some um, local local wound care. I, I am pleasantly surprised by that That's answer, Paul. <laughs> That's good news. I guess in terms of prevention, is there where are we in terms of testing? I know, you know we used to sort of hand out fentanyl test strips, which seems almost kind of moot at this point, but is there is there the capacity for, for folks to look for xylazine and can we test for it on, on the clinical side as well? You know, there's no FDA CLIA waived uh, test for this at, at the current time. So really, it's it's going to be a send out test like to a forensic lab. Uh, they're used typically doing GC mass spec or LC mass spec uh, to test for this. So it, it typically takes days to get and it's a relatively expensive test. And, you know, the, the with the turnaround time, it doesn't really help. It's not really helpful at the bedside in an inpatient service. Um, it would be really great if we had something that was amenable to like an immune assay on our typical urine drug screen, but currently there's uh, nothing nothing available. Can we talk a little bit about the, the toxidrome itself? So we have, you know, these sort of, you know, I feel like if you see these skin lesions, we might have a sense, but if, if the patient doesn't have those and, and maybe um, ingested xylazine in some other way, whether it be insufflation or some other way that we'll talk about later, um, how might we suspect xylazine other than maybe the resistance to Narcan? Are there other things that go along with it? Like what's the blood pressure doing? Does the patient behave any differently than opioid intoxication? You know, I see a lot of literature out there that says it causes bradycardia and hypotension uh, in overdose. Um, And I think a lot of that information comes from our understanding of what clonidine does. And these two drugs are relatively similar. Um, I I think from my experience though, we haven't seen a ton of that. Um, 
Um, we see certainly a lot of opioid overdoses in our emergency department, and we're not seeing a ton of patients with bradycardia and hypotensin. And uh, if you think that uh, greater than 90% of the bags here in Philadelphia have xylazine, you would expect a lot more patients to have bradycardia and hypotension. So yeah, we really don't see that. I imagine it's because it uh, doesn't hit the imidazoline receptors like uh, the other imidazolines like clonidine or tizanidine would. So that, I think that's why we're not really seeing that effect. So let's move on here. And Paul, if you want to just read the, the next part here. Sure. So we learned that JJ last injected fentanyl and uh, evidently xylazine four hours prior to arrival. She is starting to withdraw and has 10 out of 10 pain in her left lower extremity. Um, so I, I'm wondering if you could talk us through from a withdrawal standpoint, sort of what, what might we be able to do in the acute setting, especially sort of in an inpatient hospital ward? How, how might we manage that? Um, well, maybe I can describe what the withdrawal looks like. Right. Yeah. You know, it is uh, primarily um, anxiety, so like restlessness and dysphoria. Typically starts within the first 24 hours of abstinence and can last three to five, maybe even up to a week. Um, but what we're not seeing is the vital sign abnormalities like we'd see with alcohol or benzo withdrawal. We're not seeing severe tachycardia, hypertension, diaphoresis, um, or seizures like we see with alcohol or benzos. Uh, so that's a, a really good a really good thing. Um, but the anxiety is so severe, it oftentimes drives people out of the hospital. And so uh, we and certainly need to concentrate on that. Would you recognize this as like you've put someone on a good dose of an opioid um, and, and they're still having that anxiety, that restlessness? Is that how you recognize it clinically? Yeah, because I think what you're pointing out is there's an overlap here with opioid withdrawal. You know, certainly anxiety is part of opioid withdrawal syndrome. Um, but yeah, and as part of the treatment side, what we're looking for is really good opioid withdrawal management. You're not seeing that multi-organ uh, symptoms like, you know, the uh, vomiting and diarrhea is gone, uh, the piloerection, the yawning is all has all subsided, but they still have this like leftover anxiety. And that really screams to me that that person is having the xylazine withdrawal. I, I think I've probably seen that and didn't realize what it was. Now I will probably be more likely to recognize that because uh, I, I have seen patients thinking back uh, who are getting what I think is good treatment for opioid withdrawal, but they're still just like uncomfortable. I thought it was like nicotine, <laughs> so, but I, they're getting nicotine patches, all the other things. So this, this is good to know to think about this. Um, I, I think the patient we're giving you here is, is going to be going to a general medical floor. My understanding is that we're using in, in the ICUs, even like phenobarbital and some other uh, medications. And we're going to focus more on this uh, inpatient management, like on the hospital wards, but can you just speak to what might happen in the ICU and, and then how that would differ from if they're just coming to the general wards? Yeah, so clearly in, in the ICU, we have access to some you know, uh, medications that can be given as like a continuous infusion or that are a little more dangerous and require uh, some monitoring. So yeah, dexmedetomidine is a great uh, medication. It sort of fits in an imidazoline uh, hole where it can, you know, uh, provide some alpha-2 agonist support um, and it can be titrated easily and rapidly. So that's really effective. And then adding on phenobarbital, as you said, and like a taper can be really effective. So for your general patient, let's say we, we've started, we're gonna talk about opioid withdrawal next, but let's say we have that patient that I was describing where they're, they're very anxious, restless, despite getting uh, their opioid withdrawal address. What might you reach for if you're the hospitalist seeing them uh, and you're rounding that morning? 
Yeah, the first medications that we're reaching for are benzodiazepines. I think they're um, you know readily available, are safe, and can be titrated. Um, and so we're typically reaching for like a clonazepam, two milligrams, Q4 to six PRN for anxiety. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, has been the most effective medication in my experience. And actually, when you talk to patients too, they're they're even asking for it. You know, oftentimes I'll see uh, patients who are mentioning to their provider like, oh, I'm using lots of benzos because they know that they need a benzodiazepine to help manage their xylazine withdrawal. And uh, maybe their provider doesn't understand that so much about xylazine withdrawal. And so they're asking for benzodiazepines. And so it's actually been a very beneficial medication. I think there's a number of adjunct medications that can be helpful too, like clonidine. You know, it's like pretty intuitive to use clonidine since this is a medication that's very similar to clonidine. Um, And I hear a lot of people saying, oh, we should really be concentrating on giving higher doses of clonidine. But actually, I think we're at this like, uh, you know, we're a, uh, an order of, of um, you know, magnitude off from uh, treating or uh, filling the deficit of that alpha-2 agonist. You would have to give so much clonidine uh, that it would cause that patient to be bradycardic and hypotensive. It's just, it would be toxic. And then now you've got your, you got a new problem, right? So, you know, while it can be used as an adjunct um, and along with like gabapentin and maybe even tizanidine, uh, the, really the mainstay of treatment that I've seen that's been effective has been uh, benzodiazepines. Paul, does this make, this always makes me nervous adding a benzo to somebody that's already opioid xylazine on board. Any? This was my exact question. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of creating new problems, I think this maybe speaks more to my anxiety. But is there? And we're kind of in uncharted waters. But is there a role for like a like a structured benzo taper? It sounds like you do sort of mostly sort of symptom triggered stuff for for presumed xylazine withdrawal. But like it, I, I like how how do you sort of get away from this or have you run into problems sort of coming off the benzos once someone's out of the acute phase? You know, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, they have a lot of resistance to benzodiazepines. So they don't really have the same response when you give that uh, same dose. So like, I wouldn't recommend giving these doses for people who are sedative, hypnotic, naive. Uh, I see a lot of resistance in this community. So actually I'm ramping up doses of benzos to in, in symptom triggered manner to help manage their anxiety. Um, and I don't see it. Uh, I don't see a lot of over sedation in this community. So I think it's relatively safe. Um, but I, I understand the, the combo of full agonist opioid and benzo is, is relative is pretty dangerous. Uh, but then as part of the ta- the tapering, you know, typically like the three to five uh, day stage, we're sort of just giving less and less, decreasing the dose or the timing, uh, the frequency for yeah. how much we're offering. So the point that they're off of benzos uh, prior to discharge. You know, what we'll see, though, we unearth a lot of um, untreated anxiety disorders in this in this population. You know, there's a lot of trauma and untreated uh, psychiatric diagnoses. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it sort of becomes apparent when it's like day five and day seven, and they're still requiring a lot of benzos, then you start asking questions like, well, have you dealt with this problem before? And oftentimes it comes out that like, yes, I've had, you know, I've been on benzos for most of my life, or I've had anxiety that's never been treated. And that's our opportunity to then just to to start some anxiety disorder management too in the hospital. I'm, I'm a big proponent of using a starting antidepressants and antipsychotics in this period of time too, uh, which I sort of left out. Antipsychotics can be a very uh, a, another good adjunct in this uh, environment too. And a- any favorites there? Olanzapine, haloperidol, or uh... 
Um, you know, I've tried them all. Um, I, I don't, I don't I see a big difference in it. My typical uh, go-to medication is quetiapine. I think that's a uh, relatively safe. Sometimes I hear patients say that it causes restless leg syndrome, and then we move on to other antipsychotics instead. But yeah, quetiapine is typically my first medication that I'm going to. Yeah, I, I always just think of exit strategy. Anytime I'm giving a patient opioids, benzos in the hospital, I always have that conversation like at the beginning, like this is not, we will not be discharging you on this medicine necessarily. Like we, this is how it's gonna go. We're at least having a plan. Maybe maybe they will be discharged on, on an opioid if we're talking about treating opioid use disorder. But uh, I, I think that this is important to do. And uh, that would make me less, the fact that we're, even if we're starting it for xylazine withdrawal, we're going to be tapering off before they leave makes me much more likely to actually do that for the patient. Because um, I, I I think it just makes it a, a lot harder to discharge the patient if you're discharging them with multiple substances, finding someone that's going to prescribe them when they leave the hospital. You know, for a small minority of patients, we do discharge them on benzodiazepines, but um it's difficult because I don't want to put that primary care physician or that addiction medicine uh, specialist in a bad place if they are not interested or not uh, willing to prescribe benzodiazepines. I think we sort of set them up for failure. So sometimes I will make sure with that doc that's leaving, is this okay? Here's the plan we came up with before I would do that. But yeah, it's a small minority of patients that I'm sending out on benzo. So Paul, what do you what do you think we should get to next? Are we ready to talk some opioid withdrawal now? Yeah, I think We'll, we'll finish up with the outpatient considerations, but I think right now while we still have JJ in the hospital, maybe we can talk through, uh, Joe, your strategies for management of acute pain in a patient like this. Does xylazine change anything? And then sort of more broadly for someone who has opioid use disorder, what does, what does your pain management look like in, in patients who are currently hospitalized? Um, so withdrawal and pain management sort of go hand in hand. You know, I would uh, love for this person just to get started on buprenorphine right from the door. And, uh, you know, we oftentimes will ask them, you know, can we get you started on buprenorphine today? I got to say that uh, it's increasingly been, we've been increasingly unsuccessful in getting on people onto buprenorphine right from the door, um, especially with traditional induction. And so we're typically starting with full agonist opioid, long-acting opioid opioids to treat the dependence of opioids, and then uh, concurrent short-acting opioids in tolerant doses to manage pain. And so we're concentrating on titrating the long-acting opioids to meet their dependence, and then while giving short-acting opioids uh, in a PRN and sort of symptom-based triggered dosing uh, to manage their pain. And it, uh, we're going to talk about low dose initiation, but for for patients who are just coming in the door, you're putting them on full agonist, like long and short acting opioids for their pain and their withdrawal. Um, what's the exit strategy there? Like if they're not going to go on methadone or buprenorphine when they leave the hospital, do you keep them in to wean them down or are they just leaving and then... Yeah, I think there's two different pathways we're going here. You know, for the patients who are interested in getting onto medications for opioid use disorder, we have strategies to transition them, cross taper onto buprenorphine or methadone. But actually for the patients who are saying like, yep, I'm not going to be interested in treatment here. I'm actually not interested in recovery. I'm going to continue to use. Uh, weaning or tapering to off is actually quite dangerous for patients. You know, as patients lose their tolerance and return to an unstable 
stable environment and have a recurrence of use, uh, you know, the, the tolerance is actually very protective for them. And so actually weaning them off is dangerous and it's going to lead to an opioid overdose death. And so actually not tapering and keeping, the, keeping their tolerance up can be protective for them. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So I want to bring up I'm gonna skip through this one here. So we we talked about ahead of time a little bit that there's a couple different pathways when someone has, has both acute pain and withdrawal. The standard buprenorphine initiation is tough because it requires uh, a withdrawal period before you can give them a big dose of buprenorphine. And so now there's this low dose initiation. And the other one of the other options we just talked about is giving them just full agonist opioids. That will keep them from withdrawing. That, that will also help control their pain. And then uh, one of the other options is giving somebody methadone. So uh, do you have any preference or how do you decide between these pathways before we get into the individual ones? Um, it's oftentimes patient preference yeah. uh, that we start there and then work back. Uh, you know, there are a lot of social factors that go into how what treatment's going to look like. Um, insurance is not oftentimes a, a, a barrier into this and where the person's going to be living. What's their access to methadone clinic going to look like? Are they going to be able to get up and out of their out of their you know living situation to get to the clinic every day? Uh, so a lot of those things go into it. And so we really talk about what their life is going to look like on each one of those therapies and then try to tailor that to what's going what's going to be best for them um, but yeah both are an option um, and uh, both are uh, totally acceptable in the hospital to concurrently manage withdrawal and pain yeah and, and even if you start somebody on the full agonist uh, full opioid agonist pathway they're getting a PCA with hydromorphone or they're getting long acting oxycodone and short acting oxycodone you can always convert them over to one of the other pathways yeah, actually, the low-dose induction cross-taper over to buprenorphine uh, is perfect scenario for a painful condition. So we see patients on our trauma service who are on full agonist opioid on a PCA pump, and we start a low-dose induction, and they don't have to stop their pain treatment, and that's a, a, a great option for patients in the hospital. Working from the assumption, which is probably correct that everyone here knows this, but I, I feel like Part of the decision tree largely depends on someone's experience with precipitated withdrawal. Like I feel patients that have been through it will tell you they would never wish on their worst enemy. It's the worst thing they've ever been through and they are terrified to start buprenorphine therapy. So I, I, wanna, I think that I guess probably plays into the decision as to which they would choose and why the low dose induction might be a good option. Um, but is it worth just sort of talking through precipitated withdrawal just sort of briefly so we're all kind of on the same page? Yeah, so precipitated withdrawal, I think we've got some grass here to, to help uh, describe this. It's uh, when you have full, full opioid agonist in your system and you give a partial agonist like buprenorphine in a large dose, it is going to displace the full agonist opioid because buprenorphine is highly, um, has high affinity at the mu receptor. And so it kind of acts like naloxone in that sense. And so what we're doing with the traditional uh, induction is we have to stop opioids. They have to be in withdrawal. So then when you give this partial agonist, it actually elevates their opioid effect. But with this low-dose induction, what we're doing is displacing small amounts of opioids um, 
uh, over a, you know a longer period of time. So you get over to f uh, partial agonist uh, therapy without the the full agonist in a in a way that doesn't make you sick. It's just the slow induction, displacing small amounts. You don't perceive this uh, withdrawal like you would with uh, giving a patient a large amount, like eight milligrams. And so the the analogy we give is if someone's on a full agonist opioid going 120 miles per hour and you suddenly give them a full dose of buprenorphine, you're going to make them crash because they're going to slow from 120 down to 60 miles per hour. But if you wait hours or days, the person's now only going 30 miles per hour on buprenorphine. So you give when you give them or on full agonist. So when you give them buprenorphine, it actually raises their speed to 60 miles per hour. That's the, for those of you live, that's the middle slide here. Uh, and then the, the newer and I think exciting and more patient-centered because it doesn't require any withdrawal period is the patient comes in, you keep them going 120 miles per hour on, uh, on their full agonist opioids and you slowly give them bigger and bigger doses of buprenorphine and uh, in this low dose initiation and they're, they're gradually now on a full dose by four or five days in, they can be on a full dose and uh, any comments on that? Yeah, this really changed how we uh, manage patients in the hospital. You know, within the last year, we started doing microinductions, and the conversation is totally different. Uh, you know, we were begging and pleading with people to get on buprenorphine before, and everyone would just say, no, I've had bad experiences. I've always get precipitated withdrawal. That medication doesn't work for me. But now this option of continuing their opioids while we're giving them low doses, it, like greater than tenfold um, increase in number of patients were able to get on buprenorphine. And really the conversation co has completely changed now. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, this is an example, a great pharmacist that I work with named Maria Foy uh, gave me this slide where you're, depending on what formulation of buprenorphine you have in your hospital, there's there's transdermal, there's buccal buprenorphine, and those are those tend to be in doses of micrograms as opposed to the films or the tabs, which are in doses of milligrams. So if you give them some microgram prep over the course of a couple of days and you slowly escalate the dose, it kind of slowly brings down that speed and allows you to get the get the patient onto buprenorphine. So you'd have to work with your lo local pharmacist to figure out what you can what you can do locally but uh, I think this is really exciting um, Paul any comments questions I do like the question when do you start this conversation I think the pendulum is swung in a way that is exciting because there's now wild enthusiasm to get patients on medications for opioid use disorder and that's wonderful but I think patients the timing of those discussions can be important so I guess Joe I'm, I'm wondering how When's the best time to kind of have that conversation? Sort of how do you how do you broach that with a patient who's currently inpatient specifically? You know, I think we we want to start the conversation early on. I got to say, it's not necessarily the best time to do a low dose induction right as they hit the door in the hospital. I, I find that that three to five day window is the best uh, time to get started on a low dose induction. I think there's a lot of push to start earlier and earlier, but uh, you know, it's it's difficult for patients. Uh, the best time is when they are feeling comfortable and not in withdrawal, and actually, that's the period of time where you know they're. You know, early on, the nucleus accumbens is really, um, 
you know, the decision maker of in your brain, it's going to be fight or flight, uh, preservation. But as they get comfortable, now you're able to use your frontal lobe again and make these higher, higher level decisions and have a good conversation about what medication is going to work for them. And so really waiting till they're not in withdrawal to have this conversation is, I think, super important. And then also once they're comfortable making this transition over to bup, uh, it happens a lot easier. If you're feeling sick throughout this uh, low-dose induction, people will perceive that it's not working for them and abandon the treatment. And we should just mention, we mentioned briefly, methadone is a good option and it, it does not require a withdrawal period because it is a full agonist, uh, full opioid agonist. Um, I, but I, I think this is all great. Paul, should we move to jumping into talking a little bit about the outpatient management? Do you want to get back to the case? Sure. Yeah. So let's let's finish up the case with JJ because we love a happy ending. So for <laughs> acute pain opioid withdrawal, JJ started on a hydromorphone pump, um, undergoes low-dose propanorphine initiation, and for xylazine withdrawal, she receives clonazepam, clomidine, and tizanidine. Uh, her symptoms of xylazine withdrawal resolved before hospital discharge, and she was happily stabilized on a maintenance dose of buprenorphine naloxone, 24 milligrams daily. So... This patient is teed up, they're gonna be discharged. Hopefully there's a warm handoff to uh, a clinic that prescribes medications for opioid use disorder. For the xylazine part, Joe, is there anything that we need to be mindful of or sort of think about um, as we're sort of making that transition? The diagnosis of xylazine use disorder is certainly not in the DSM-5. It's not out there yet. Uh, and I imagine that is going to uh, come to fruition in the next couple of years. Um, but currently, you know, I'm not seeing a, um, a ton of that. And typically, our management is the acute dependence management, so detox, essentially, and then uh, treatment of anxiety disorders as an outpatient. So no, we, we're not typically managing patients for a prolonged period of time for xylazine use disorder at, this, at the current time. I mean, certainly patients may leave on some medications to help with some continued minor withdrawal symptoms. So things like clonidine, gabapentin, uh, um, antipsychotics are, are, are common medications that people are leaving the hospital with to continue, continue that treatment. But uh, it, it's, there is no like uh, replacement therapy for this at this time. Should we take some audience questions, and or do you have more? I, you always, I always have more. Um, <laughs> no, I was, specifically, you know, in the outpatient setting, I feel like harm reduction conversations are, it's like that's. I'm trying to do a better job with those. So, and it seems like the more striking long-term complications, the xylazine use, specifically with injections, is the wounds. I'm wondering if there's a role for harm reduction conversations, like using via boofing or booty bumping or inhaling or smoking. Is there a way to kind of mitigate some of the the damage that we're seeing here by sort of other means of administration, or I guess more broadly, what kind of harm reduction things can we talk about when we're talking to our patients? Yeah. Uh, we're, what's clear to me is that uh, when you move from injection drug use to other methods, we're not seeing the wounds. And so for people who are uh, insufflating, intranasal use, smoking uh, of uh, xylazine, we're not seeing this chronic complication like these wounds. So certainly having people change their behavior is important, but that is really difficult to do. Um, it, anyone who has managed um, uh, patients with substance Substance use disorder, the behavior is oftentimes something that uh, is the addiction, actually the whole ritual of injecting, but then also the effect from that drug. Like there is, there's nothing that's going to replace the rapid uh, time to peak with injection drug use. But absolutely, if, uh, you know, trying to work with patients to get to a safer method of use, um, like uh, smoking or, or snorting or booty bumping.
Well, you got it in there, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'd like to take some questions from the audience. I know that you all see a lot of patients with opioid use disorder here just based on the location of the hospital. So we can take questions or we, can, we have other stuff we could do as well. But uh, anybody, <laughs> does anybody have any questions uh, about, about this topic? So just to repeat the question for, for microphones and for the room, it, it sounds like what is the calculus that goes into sort of calculating the dose of phylogenous therapy before we even have the conversation? Is that yeah. fair? Okay. You know, this is a local conversation because just remember the MME for a bag of heroin fentanyl is going to be different in every community. Um, in the Philadelphia community, uh, a typical bag is like 2,000 micrograms of fentanyl. And so you are never going to match the MME with pharmaceutical opioids, uh, especially for people who are using three or four bags at a time. And so, um, you know, having like a local protocol on what medications are going to be started at what doses uh, can help everyone get on the same page. And so picking an arbitrary number and starting there and then titrating up in a, in a like an objective fashion can be helpful to get uh, everybody on the same page. But yeah, it, it's, it's nearly impossible to meet the MME when people are using bags of fentanyl. Uh, and so you're never you're never going to match that. But having a starting dose uh, is really important. And it does seem like you can get by with at least like a slightly lower, like not 100 percent matching. Maybe one of the pharmacists I work with mentioned she thought there was like hyperalgesia. So actually you can get by with lower, lower doses. I don't I don't know if that's true or not, but I mean, it's it, it would be really scary to try to truly match. Like you're going to what are you going to put someone on? <laughs> You know, like 500 milligrams three times a day of oxycodone ER. I mean, that sounds scary. Yeah, you know, we're doing um, a decent amount of that at Temple, uh, you know, but even at these high doses, we're still not able to match right. their their need. But the titration is really important. Yeah. And actually having the comfort of, you know, having the trust from the patient that you sure. are trying everything you can to help them. And so mixing some of the long acting and short acting can give them some more relief yeah. and uh, just continue to titrate because you get to that three to five day window and now you have met a new dependence level and a new starting point, a new baseline that you can work from. And that can be really beneficial. A great question. Thank you. Thanks. Any Any other questions? Right here, the audience member asked a question about when patients come to the hospital, are you typically using IV and or oral analgesics? You were doing a mix of two. And so remember the long acting opioids, they're not gonna be really in IV form. So we're starting with a lot of like either methadone or oxycodone extended release medication and then mixing it with the short acting. And so some oral short acting and some IV short acting. So like oxycodone immediate release or hydromorphone injection. Uh, but then uh, for some patients that, does, that doesn't work and uh, we move on to PCA pumps too. And so remember if we're using a PCA pump, actually it's much safer than these like intermittent large doses of opioids. These short, frequent doses can get you a lot bigger doses of opioid and get more relief. It's also a lot more patient-centered. Uh, and, uh, you know, oftentimes patients will complain that the nurse is like withholding medications from them and there becomes like a little bit of an antagonistic relationship that can occur. And this can restore that patient-nurse relationship by using a PCA pump. Um, and so the continuous infusion can sort of work as a, the same as a, as a long-acting opioid. And then the short-acting opioid can replace the, uh, or like the bolus dose can replace the short-acting opioid. 
Yeah, and it seems this would this makes me nervous as well. So this would have to be like a I'd need a pharmacist or addiction medicine, somebody holding my hand through this. But it it's because there's not a lot of like existing protocols from what I've seen. I think each hospital is doing their own thing right now, but not like national guidelines to tell us what to do here. Yeah, and, and really national guidelines wouldn't necessarily be a great thing because I think there's a lot of local yeah. uh, changes, a lot of local ver uh, variety. So you have to come up with a local plan and. Uh, Having having the appropriate you know departments involved in creating a an opioid dependence protocol like we have in our our department our our hospital. So one more one more question and then we'll we could wrap up here. Here the audience asks, what's your strategy for tapering opioids? Yeah, um, we're never tapering opioids. I, I I just don't think that's a, a great option for patients unless, uh, you know, we've had like an open conversation about what that looks like for them. Oftentimes patients are not really interested in tapering, especially if they've got a painful condition. You know, less opioids tomorrow is not going to make their pain any better. If they're in withdrawal, their pain is going to be worse. Uh, and so keeping their tolerance up can actually be protective. And when we're transitioning people to methadone or buprenorphine, we're not doing any tapering in that manner. Once we get to the 16 milligram day, we just stop the long-acting opioids. And if they still require some short-acting opioids for pain control, that can be continued and tapered to off prior to discharge. So, uh, Joe, what would be, if you want people today that, that have been here in the audience or listening at home, uh, what would be like two or three take-home points that you want people to remember about this topic? Well, I think one, there needs to be more research in this area. We need to understand a a lot more about what this drug does in humans, the pharmacology, the cytotoxic effects of it, like how this is causing wounds. Um, and then also the, uh, we need more um, resources to manage this problem. So understanding the best treatment for xylazine withdrawal treatment or having a readily available test so everybody understands that, yes, my patient's being exposed to xylazine, so I need to account for that. I think those are two major um, points to make. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great, strong work. You just got to power through. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube now, Paul. Great. Uh, you can also email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. And a special thanks to uh, Pennsylvania Hospital uh, Department of Medicine for hosting us. Uh, and I wanted to thank our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto and Jen Watto run our social media. And Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, Paul, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you so much. And we'll pause for a rousing round of applause for Dr. Joe DeRazio, who's fantastic. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for having me.